Welcome to the fifth episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Mark Patrick and Graham discussing the music of the post-punk slash new wave period of the late 70s and early 80s. Here's Patrick to introduce today's featured band. Early in his career, Johnny Rotten was asked what he thought of the Rolling Stones. He scoffed, I don't. Punk was always about hopelessly unskilled but passionate kids picking up instruments, jumping on stage and just going for it. But it was also a scorched earth policy in which the past should be hurled into the nearest dustbin where it belonged. So, in 1977, what were the prospects for a London-based punk trio that featured a 35-year-old virtuoso guitarist who'd been a member of the Animals in the late 1960s, as well as a dexterous American drummer whose CV included a stint with the prog rock outfit Curved Air, not to mention a former school teacher at the front of the band who'd recently played in a jazz rock ensemble and who frequently wore a striped jumper that made him look unnervingly like a bee. To the derision of many in the punk movement, the police would go on to become the most successful new wave band of all. Their sparse, insistently rhythmic, impossibly catchy songs simply took the world by storm, and within three years, they were arguably the biggest band on the planet. Their blonde bonces were everywhere as the hits kept coming. However, by 1984, it was all over and they'd gone their separate ways. So, with the benefit of almost four decades hindsight, how does the legacy of the police stack up? Pleasant but forgettable reggae-tinged pop from a best-forgotten band? or creators of some of the most brilliant music of the era. So I guess the question, it's not really a question, it's a, it's a discussion topic, um, how the band even started really, because from, from their kind of disparate backgrounds, you know, it's like what tales do we have to tell of how of how they all came together. Well, I'll just jump in here at the first off and say they were all highly accomplished musicians, mm. which put them at odds with the punk scene, as you just said. And they were, they were born a good deal earlier. Born in the 50s, as the police song Well, went. one of them was born in the 40s, but, but, but <laughs> they were... Better. But they were... 1942. Um, they were accomplished musicians. Been around, done a few things. Before punk started, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the, the meeting, how did they get together, Graham? This is an area of your... Your expertise, I believe. My Actually, expertise. Well, so not, I've not got really. something interesting yeah. to say about Andy Summers. Oh. I'd, li- I'd like the floor D- for a moment. Do tell. Who? <laughs> <laughs> um, the guitarist. Uh, the guitarist from the, from the police. Oh, yes. He played in the Animals, believe it or not. I, oh, I heard yes. that just about okay. 60 seconds ago. Ah, okay, yeah. yeah, so and uh, he played on, <laughs> played on one of their albums. He played a four-minute guitar solo on the one album Sweet. that he played on. Well, that's very unpunk of right theirs. there. Yeah, Rock on. Yeah, so... If you're wondering about the kind of lack of punk cred <laughs> that Andy Summers had as, as a 35-year-old virtuoso guitarist, you can just throw in the fact that he had his four-minute guitar solo on, on an album in 1968. <laughs> 68, really? Was that uh, m- Might have been a little bit later than that. Yeah. He was in Zoot Money. Uh, the Zoot Money Roll Band. Yeah, which was also another kind of hippie mm, band at yeah. the tail end of the 60s. So he was, he was probably the most seasoned of them yeah. all. Yeah, seasoned is and it was blues. They were they were like blues bands. A lot yeah. of those sorts of bands in England. Well, blues was like, like big in the UK Fleetwood at the Mac, end of the sixties. Fleetwood Mac were a blues band. Be that as it may, yes, uh, Andy Summers had no credibility whatsoever. So I guess in terms of the band actually starting, Stuart Copeland, the drummer, met Henri Padovani. Uh, he wasn't French, was he? Yeah, yeah he, he was had an English accent. Did he yeah, have an English accent? No, well, well, I think there. <laughs> he had a striped T-shirt. <laughs> these uh, days, and a beret. And a beret mm-hmm. These days, I think he may not speak with a French accent. But but Stuart Copeland did say that when he met Padovani, Padovani didn't speak much English, and he used to call his amplifiers humps. <laughs> ah. 
<laughs> I haven't heard that story. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe I'm just making it up. Yeah. And there's no but, proof. No, that's right. No, that's right. But, but I do um, like the story of when Stuart saw Sting for the first time when he saw Sting's jazz. I think the correct term is combo. Combo? Yeah. Combo, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I guess it wasn't really a band. And <laughs> jazz musicians will be up in arms right at this moment. Right. <laughs> but um, but it was in Newcastle. Mm. Yeah, yep. And Stuart said that the only thing they had going for them was this this charismatic singer. This is what amazed me about the story is that I think Sting was married. Yep. He was, and he either had a baby or there was one on the way. I think she was pregnant. Uh, he, he actually had a child, like a baby, mm. oh. and he came to the audition with the baby. Oh, really? Was that Frances Tomalty, his yep. first yeah. wife, who was an actress? She was, she was an actress. Yeah. yeah. But, turned, what, but what turned, an amazing decision to make to, yeah, to, yeah. to, to just pack up your life in Newcastle because he was a teacher, he had a job, um, and, and to go to, to London to be in a punk band. I just think that's amazing. Well, especially as he, he had no punk pedigree at all. And Probably no interest in it either. Yeah. Well, there's certainly not much evidence that he even liked punk or that he, that he didn't despise punk. Yeah, well, I don't think he, he despised it, but, but I think he saw an in. Mm. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so there, there may have been a bit of opportunism there, and oh, um, a little bit. I'm talking about Sting, <laughs> yeah. <and laughs> yeah. ambition. I think it must have been Stuart who did like the punk scene. Yeah, Stuart he, liked the energy. And, yeah, and the, yeah. He liked the, the energy. He liked the the DIY mm. yeah. ethic of it. So I guess it was Stuart who pushed them in that area. Yep, yep. But so, but but the idea that I mean a lot of people say that um, they weren't punks, they weren't genuine punks, which um, I kind of have a bit of a problem with because if you're questioning their punk credentials, you should also question the Clash and the, the stranglers. stranglers and people like that, people who were a little bit older and they they seemed to see this movement that was happening that they liked and they they did it and I don't think there's any crime in that. And personally, I don't know, like what what do you have? Do you have to be unemployed or something mm. to be? A, to, to, you I, know? I think that. People's problem with it is that they saw the, these bands as sort of jumping on the bandwagon and punk had a kind of a purist ethos that you, you shouldn't know how to play, you shouldn't have any agenda, it's just a genuine movement, which of course it's kind of a little bit, you know, you, you know you're fooling yourself a little bit if you think that. Once you want to play to people and release records, you, you have ambition and you want to do things. And these other bands like The Police, The Stranglers and, the, and Joe Strummer and The Clash to a degree had ambition. Yep. And wanted yep. to do things. And, and the police just happened to be a little bit more proficient and a little bit older. Mm. That's all. I mean, the Stranglers weren't spring chickens either. Mm. Um, but, yeah, some bands were forgiven and kind of like ignored on that side of it and the police were castigated for it pretty much from day one. Yep. Mm. But I don't think you can listen to the police's first single in 1977, Fallout, and not think that it sounds punk. Whether it's good or not, whether you think it has cred or not, is, this is, with, is with a separate topic. Henri. Yes. With Henri. Playing, yep. Yeah. Right. And so this is uh, pre-Andy Summers. Yeah, that's yep. right. Right, we should clarify right. that. And then after that single, they were, Stuart and Sting were invited to take part in another album project. Mm. Well, I'm not familiar with, it, with this very much. I know it was in Paris. Didn't they go to Paris and, and play? But, is this, this Strontium 19? Yeah, 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 yeah. This uh, is I, with Mike Howlett we're talking about. Yeah. Famed producer, born in Fiji, lives in Australia to this day, has produced some fantastic post-punk and all kinds of albums, including Gang of Four. Oh, uh, really? And the first Hunters and Collectors 
yep. EP, Payload. And, and he's an adjunct professor at the Queensland University of That's Technology. Right. That's right. And, and a lovely <laughs> right fellow, I must say, I had a couple of emails back and forth with him a few years ago. Right, okay. You didn't know that, did Why you? Why is yeah. that? I don't know. What I, I somehow got his email address and asked him, ah. are you the Mike Howlett? And he's like, I am indeed. And had a, had a few uh, back and forths with him and told him what a big fan I was of wow. his work. Um, if you if you don't know him, have a look at his list of credits. It ranges from the Thompson Twins to the, maybe the Fix. And he's the man behind Iran. That's oh, right, really? Flock of Seagulls, yes, that's for better or worse, he did that. Um, but as a bass player, once again, I think he had a unique take on uh, the sonics of these sorts of things. But anyway, we digress. He um, was in Strontium 90, which had two bass players, which yep. is very prog, Sting and himself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't understand, but did, did Sting... Um like Mike Howlett had this band. It was he, basically Mike asked, Howlett's band, I think. Yeah, it was it was his project and he got session musicians in on it. Yeah, that's, to do recording that, and, and gigs. Yep. Yep. And he got a guitarist friend of his or a guitarist he knew who used to be in The Animals and who played a four-minute solo oh, that in guy. a song in 1960. <laughs> you talking about Andy Summers? <laughs> Andy Summers. You are. And they recorded an album which in okay. in later years was titled Police Academy. Ah, I nice. Think, Very I think, good. I think that was pol- police manager Miles Copeland, yes. brother of Stuart. I think that might have been his idea. But it's an interesting album, and it's, it sounds a little bit like Porcupine Tree to me. Oh, really? Stephen Wilson, that kind of stuff. Okay. I so like very, a bit of very prog. accomplished. Okay. So seek that one out. Yeah. And it also features an early version of uh, Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic. Do I have to tell the story of a thousand rainy days since we first met? 1977. that up his sleeve back then. Absolutely. And I think word for word, I I don't know that there's a single lyric change. Well, any band that has two bass players in it, I'm interested in hearing. So I'm (laughs) going to go and download that legally. Mm. When yes. I get home tonight, make, make sure you do. Absolutely. Yes, make sure now, Graham, I want you to talk about the uh, Cherry Vanilla tour because this is an interesting punk credentials. Well, I mean, this, this, this is why well. when, when people say that that the police aren't punk, this is where I say, "Who are these people? Who are these people? <laughs> Who exactly. the hell are they?" Well, well this, 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 I usually just stand up and walk out of the room. Mm. Apart from being my favourite flavour, <laughs> uh, Cherry Vanilla was a singer and actress from New York who worked with Andy Warhol. And then she uh, went on to be, I think, David Bowie's publicist, and and then I think it was, it was Miles Copeland, who's Stuart's brother, that got her to come to the UK, and she toured with Stuart and Sting, playing uh, drums and bass in her band, and then the police supported her. And they would have gone through the whole process. For those people who who, who don't know this, a lot of the early punks were basically showered in spit when when they played. Especially around London, so they would have had to <laughs> had to have done that for you know, an entire tour. I can't imagine Sting playing his bass and being spat on, and being thrilled about this. No. But, but basically, if you do that, baptism you, of fire, you're saying? Yeah, well, it, it, but <laughs> baptism <it's>, of phlegm. Phlegm. <laughs> but you know, if you if you put yourself through that, you've either a got to believe in what you're doing, or and and on some level like what you're doing. Like, he wouldn't have been doing this if he didn't genuinely like the music, even if he saw it as a, a gateway mm. into becoming a pop star himself. Mm. I still think on some level they must have all thought that they were a part of a movement. They were they were punks for a while, and I reckon they enjoyed being a part of that movement, and I thought they were 
they thought that they were as authentic as anyone else. I think they probably enjoyed being a little bit better than everybody else too. Yeah, mm. yeah. Being better musicians, being more together, yeah. uh, having some songs. I mean, there's no denying the early police stuff has melody. They're, they're impressive songs. Mm. Like the first yeah. time I heard Outlanders to more, I was just like, well, this doesn't sound like anything else that I've been listening to. There's some pretty damn catchy stuff on here. Mm. You know? Yep. Quite outstanding songs, if you think about yeah. Can't Stand Losing You, So Lonely, Roxanne, songs like that. There's a little bit of a, little bit of a dichotomy be- between the fact that clearly they like the music because transparently you can hear that they liked it. But equally, Sting was quite happy to say that uh, in a 1979 interview, he said, if I had to choose between success and friendship, I'd probably choose success. Mm. And to, to say that so early in his career, you know, this mm. was around about the time of Message in a Bottle, he was saying this. And oh, there, there was no doubt he wanted to be successful. I think yeah. they all saw it as an opportunity yeah. to get yeah. somewhere. And that's... Fine. I mean, yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, no one knew how it was going to play out, don't forget. Mm. Punk was just like any movement, like any short-lived thing that happens. You don't really know the the importance that it's going to happen mm. till later. They just attach themselves to something that was there for gigs and, and for whatever other reasons. Yeah. But and speaking it, as, as a, a young person at the time, 79, I was young, 16, 17, around there. And um, I thought, uh, we're not at Message in a Bottle yet, but when I saw the, the video for Message in a Bottle, there were all these London punks on mm. the street at the very beginning. And for them to do that, they made a conscious decision to do that, mm. to make them... Well, the way they dressed and the way they looked, yeah. we haven't talked about that, but they all cut their hair, bleached it, spiky haircuts, they had kind of army uniforms, gym boots, you know, jumpsuits. Yeah, jumpsuits. Yeah. It was yeah. a definite look that they were associating themselves with. Mm. And as a young kid, I responded to that. I, I thought, these guys look great and the music is interesting, but it's it, it sounds like the other music that I'm liking. It's not punk, but it's mm. um, it's new and it's Sting. He was a good singer, but he used to screech a lot in the early days and I think there was a... There was a, a deliberate attempt by him to make his voice sound a little bit more gravelly and, mm. you know, and mm. he would yell on occasion. But I, um, yeah, I, 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 thought they, I thought they looked great and I thought they sounded great. I thought they and, looked and, and really thought, exciting. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was something that I wanted to be a part of. So even if they were just using the movement to become successful. Even if they were posers. Even if they were <laughs> posers. the word thrown around yeah, at yeah. the time. I, I, it, it, it worked with me. It got you in. It got me well, in. Well, there you go. If nothing else, yeah. <laughs> it, it got one lonely lad in Brisbane <laughs> in. Um, I'm going to jump into the first single and first album because I think we, we've covered the early period quite successfully. Patrick and I were talking about this earlier. I think I first heard Can't Stand Losing You, which was the second single off their first album when I was in England and I was sufficiently impressed by it to, impressed by it to sort of wonder who they were and what they were doing. So you, you were living in England? I was living in England. At, at the time? At the time. That's how I heard it. And, um, you know, liked it because it was quite different. It's it's a reggae kind of thing and it's got a little bit of edge to it and the song's about suicide and, you know, all the stuff teenagers respond to. But I, I do remember coming back to Australia and, and, and catching up with Patrick, my old friend, and um, in his Ballarat abode, 
<laughs> and uh, we were we were jumping around in his bedroom, listening to three CV, which was the Bendigo radio station, and might Absolutely. well still yep. be. Yep. Uh, one Central Victoria, Central Free Victoria, CV. one Saturday evening, and a song came on the radio because we would listen to Three CV because it was a little bit more interesting than Three BA, the Ballarat <laughs> radio station. And this song came on, and we both—I remember—both sort of stopped and sort of went, "What's this?" We stopped our jigging, stopped in your tracks, <laughs> in our tracks. We got down off the bed and then stopped jumping up and down. On it. I, I might mention we were probably and entertainment at the time. was cheap in the seventies. Yeah, it was just another Saturday night in Ballarat, and um, and this song was Roxanne. which had been uh, re-released, I think, at this point, because it was released in 78 first and didn't do much. Yeah. I think they had a bit of success with Can't Stand Losing You and maybe re-released Roxanne. But it came on the radio and we both sort of stopped in our tracks and went, what's this? And, and, and I think I might have said to you, I think this is this group that I heard in England, but I haven't heard this song before. And yeah. Um, yeah. I remember thinking how different it sounded and, and how impressed I was with it at the time. And I probably went out, I did buy it, I have the seven inch of it, I went out and bought it based on that. And that was a real kind of moment, like a little bell went off with me. Yeah, This is a band that maybe I should be more interested in and subsequently probably bought Outlandos pretty much after it came out and um, was impressed with what was on it because it was a mixture of pretty much everything that was going around. Yeah. Pop, punk, reggae. Uh, weird lyrics, some sort of quirky songs, the song about the blow-up doll, yep. Be <laughs> My Girl Sally. I yep. mean, you know, all stuff that appeals to teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, all of my favourite albums almost, have songs about blow-up girls. And, or, and, and suicide. <laughs> and suicide. Uh, and <laughs> prostitution <laughs> with Roxanne. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Needs, needs more suicide, I needs think. Needs more suicide, was, I think I said, said at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Only one body, that's not enough. Uh, but the song Roxanne was written about uh, uh, when they were in Paris, I believe, in the Red Light District and... Um, I think Sting might have had the melody or something up his sleeve already, but um, he came back from Paris and wrote that song. Still, probably their most famous song. Mm. In yeah, anyways. well, it was the uh, it was the song that A and M Records that sealed the deal for their their. their yeah. Uh, their well, record the story deal. goes that Miles Copeland was sort of listening to them recording, and didn't like anything they did until he heard Roxanne, mm. the manager, and uh, and said, you know, that's it. We, we've got something there, and he and he took that to A&M and they basically got them the deal mm. initially for their first album. Well, it is interesting listening to the first album because it is a really kind of disparate kind of sounds because mm. there there is a little bit of what might almost be called reggae, not a huge amount, but, but certainly some. There's some pretty straight out rock and roll. There's some just kind of some weird, quirky stuff. Well, Roxanne's um, kind of a bossa nova, isn't it? Mm. Sort of a weird kind of off-kilter thing. Yeah, yeah, catchy song, nevertheless. Yeah, and mm. and some almost kind of straight rock with Born in the Fifties, yeah. for instance. So, yeah. um, I guess the thing that unifies it is the fairly kind of raw production. It's a, of it. it's got a lot of space in it, though. When you compare yeah, it to yeah. other albums of the time, when did it come out? Seventy eight. Compare yeah, that yeah. to say the Clash's second album or other the contemporaries. The sound isn't big. Mm. It's already got that sort of police hallmark of having space. Yeah, the yeah. reggae dub thing. Um, you can hear everything. They're a three-piece, so there's there's not much going on. And, uh, you know, there's just that emptiness. I think that you associate with the police already on yep. that album. Mm-hmm. And they looked great on the cover. Once again, looked like a punk album. That's right. If you went yeah. into the record store, you'd, you'd look under punk albums and you'd see that, and you go, "This looks like the business." Yeah, yeah. And one of the fantastic things about a three-piece band 
is that you can fit all of their faces on screen at the same time in a film clip. <laughs> and they did this constantly. <laughs> they did it constantly, yes. Like, there were always the three of them mucking around together in a row in a way that in a four-piece and five-piece band you just couldn't do. And it was just beautifully balanced. Forget and, about eight-piece. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and they were just brilliant together. Like they were almost like a comic ensemble Yeah. because mm. you'd have Stuart just bashing away, you know, on his drumsticks. On like anything. Every, yeah, on, on anything or anyone. Yeah. Um, you'd have Sting being the kind of alpha male, you know, mm. trying to kind of boss people around a little bit and being being the lead singer in general. And you'd have Andy doing his occasional little cameos but but generally being the kind of the quiet member of the three. But, mm. but uh, yeah, they just looked fantastic. The energy of the three of them, they just seemed like a really fun, exciting, talented Kind of bunch well, it fit in with what was right. what was wanted. If you watch the video for Roxanne today, it still looks great. Yeah. It's kind of pink and kind of weirdly shot, and I mean, it looks amazing. They look amazing yeah. in it, yep. and they were certainly an exciting band, and coupled with once again the sound and the look of what they were doing. Yeah, yep. mm. and that but album pretty much did that. Did yeah, did the job, yeah. and yeah. it was reasonably successful. This yep. was the other thing I was was mentioning earlier. Of all the post punk bands and new wave bands. Um, they were pretty much successful from the get-go. They were mm. one of the few that pretty much jumped out of the, the blocks and was mm. a hit straight yeah. away. Well, that was the, the, that was what I got from Part of the problem probably. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. With Outlanders, when I first heard that, I, that was the moment when I realised that the music that I was liking, other people would like it as well. Like I had other friends who didn't particularly like punk, people I went to school with, but uh, when the police came along, all of a sudden, you know, they, they were buying the albums, you know, and then I think they were, I think radio were playing them at the time. Well, like I said, a regional radio station yeah. in Victoria was yeah, playing Roxanne, yeah. which it stuck out like the proverbial dog's balls. It mm. really did sound quite different to everything else that was out there at the time. Time. Well, I'm, I'm trying to think uh, what exactly would have been around, you know, in those months in what, early-ish 1979? May. Yeah, early 79. I think about, yeah, May 79, thereabouts. Mm. And yeah. the whole post-punk thing had, had pretty much not happened in Australia at all, certainly not in, the punk thing didn't in really rural Australia. In Australia. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was really early. I mean, Hong Kong Garden had oh, been yeah. a, a kind of a semi-hit, but... But apart from that, maybe maybe Rock Lobster or something. I don't know. But Rock Lobster, the uh, no, I think it predates the, predates the, the okay. B52s. Even what was, the, what was the UK Squeeze song? That, yep. I guess, cool for Cats. Cool for Cats. cats. That, that had been out. Yeah, yeah around yeah. that time. Mm. But uh, yeah, um, what we're talking about the sparseness of the sound and the rawness of the production, um, and just the the it's such a weird rhythm as well. Like the, I mean, everything about the song is really mm. quite. Peculiar, but really snappy as well. Recently, I was talking to someone about the restrictions of punk because uh, when punk came along, all of a sudden you weren't supposed to show people how well you played your instrument. You didn't play guitar solos. You didn't do anything like that. And uh, there were all these restrictions placed on punk bands. And I think it was a good thing for the police because it forced Andy Summers in particular, who was a great guitarist, yeah. to find other things to do mm, to colour yeah, yeah. to colour the cut songs. His solos down to two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, well I, I, yeah, yeah. the reason why I mentioned this, that, and this, this probably wasn't until a later album, but but there was a on one of his their songs, he played a, a one note guitar solo that just kind of started quiet, got louder and louder, and that was it. That was the whole thing. Yeah. You know, this is a very capable guitar. When the world is running down. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say the Buzzcocks had already done that. Mm. Mm. But, uh, on boredom, but, but yes. But the difference being is that yeah. uh, Andy Summers, he was really good. Andy Summers <laughs> can play. He was capable yeah. of like, two-night solos. He could have played a, a <laughs> long wafting solo throughout the whole thing, but um, he, uh, 
because it gave them a discipline of yeah, having yeah, there was a discipline, so which all is probably a, what they needed. Yeah. Mm. So all of a sudden, what he was doing on the guitar was revolutionary. He he, um, he created these textures, just just uh, striking one chord and letting it delay and reverberate with uh, chorus and flange. Well, a lot of effects based stuff, um, and that coupled with these the great bass lines of uh, that Sting came up with. Mm. People don't often talk about the bass lines, but mm. they, they were really good. And um, that, as well as Stuart's uh, really uh, unique drumming, yeah, yeah. he was um, doing this almost dub stuff because he had delays set up on certain um, drums. So he'd hit it and it'd just delay over and yeah. over again. So he was doing interesting rhythmic things like that. And just the, all of that combined with Sting's pop sensibility and his... Mm. His great voice and, and his, great songs. His, his great song and, and, they he, look great. and his great look. Mm. You know, yeah. it, it's it, it's it a really... wonder it succeeded, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was going to say is it was um, success waiting to happen, basically. Mm. It, it doesn't surprise me at all, looking back, yeah, that yeah. they became as big as they did, and and they weren't Genesis, basically. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I, I've got some facts in front of me here that the album Outlandos to More peaked at number six in the UK. And 23 in the US. I mean, that's pretty impressive for a first-time album. For a first album, album mm. yeah. You know, mm. that, that's not too bad. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think it's it cost them £1,500 to record initially or thereabouts yeah, yeah. or a few thousand pounds anyway yeah, yeah, in a small yeah. studio. Uh, and the returns on that are pretty impressive, really, <laughs> when you think about it. Mm. That would have been in response to their early tours of America as well. Mm. Yeah, well, they were, well they they backed up uh, Roxanne because Roxanne actually was released in the states, I think, first, mm. and was a bit of a minor hit yeah. with college I think, radio. I think it flopped in the UK, and yeah. then they released it in the states, and it was a minor hit, and then and, and that, then they that re-released it. Yeah, A and M to yeah. the label to re-release it in the UK, but it was it was quite strange that I think both both uh, Can't Stand Losing You and Roxanne were released in 1978 in the UK and both flopped both and, flopped, and yeah. both were, were subsequently really big hits, you know, like mm. 12 months later or 18 months later, mm. coupled with the fact that they had a second album on the way. Oh. Which was only a year later, I think, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Less than yeah. a year possibly, October 79, Regatta de Blanc yeah. was released. Funnily enough, the, the with first- With two Gs. Yes, two Gs. Yeah, get and that. two Ts. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but of course uh, Stuart Copeland, while the Outlandos sessions were happening, he was recording a bit of an EP of his own. That's right. Oh, was well. this the Clark Kent stuff under the name Clark Kent with uh, two two Ks? I am the hottest thing you ever will see. You know I'm something it ain't easy to be. Well, Sting wasn't exactly <laughs> lying about doing nothing either. <laughs> no. He was busy trying to be a movie star. He was. In that sort of, in that area. He was in Quadrophenia. Yeah. He, was, he played the ace face. Yes. The uh, scooter riding, blonde, bleached um, dude of Quadrophenia. I don't know why he had that hair. Mods didn't really bleach the hair, but there we are. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was aiming for success any way he could get it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But um, I don't know whether... Whether either of you are very familiar with, with the Clark Kent oeuvre? I've I think got, Graham actually bought it. I've got the... Um, right. the uh, There's green it, single. It's an EP on yeah. green vinyl. Yeah. Right, okay. Mm. And, yeah. And, and as soon as I saw... Like, I was a, a big police fan at the time, and as soon as I saw the film clip, I could see 
that it was Stuart Copeland, even though he'd, he was wearing some kind of disguise. Or- the weird thing about Clark Kent is that Stuart had the first minor hit out of the entire out of band. the solo project. In that sense, because the, the EP or the single from the EP, anyway, reached the top 50 in the UK before Can't Stand Losing You. Oh, really? Um, oh. And they performed on on top of the pops with Sting and with Andy Summers wearing some kind of disguise or masks or or something. <laughs> and Stuart Copeland was wearing, I think, dark glasses and an overcoat or something. The overcoat would disguise his yeah. body. <laughs> yeah, because and, and Sting and Andy Summers had in no way distinctive stage moves. So okay. yeah, it was it was this this peculiar thing because I remember seeing Clark Kent on the Australian music TV show Countdown and. Yeah, it was good stuff. It was snappy post-punk kind was, of stuff. It was, it was and very Stuart Copeland. Who, yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. Sort of thing. If you if you hear the songs that he wrote for the Police, it, it wasn't a hundred miles away from there. No, no. There's an entertaining interview on YouTube that the Police did with Ian Molly Meldrum on Countdown in 1979 or whatever when they toured Australia for the first time. 1987. 1980. That was the first time they toured. Yes. Okay. I know. I, I'll get into this. Okay. But I yeah. can Tell you why I know that. Sure. But um, Ian Meldrum asked. Stuart about Clark Kent and what's happening with, with Clark Kent and what, what can you tell me about Clark Kent? And uh, Stuart described Clark Kent in the kind of third person and said he's very difficult to understand, Clark Kent. And he went on to describe him as a young Hungarian ballet instructor <laughs> who is trained by the CIA to accept vast quantities of information at high speed <laughs> in binary code. This is on like the Australian equivalent of Top of the Pops mm. to Ian Meldrum and Ian Meldrum, his response to that was, I've learnt something today, I guess. How much is the first? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, that again ties into the kind of charisma of mm. those guys as a band. I mean, this is the drummer who's, you know, coming up with this comedic material. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a three-piece, they were all capable of coming up with kind of good one-liners in interviews. Mm. And, and I think this was the time when, <laughs> before they were arguing <laughs> yeah, with, that's with right. each other. Before the hate. Before mm. the hate. I think they were, they were generally uh, yeah, yeah. getting on well at this point. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah they were all funny. Absolutely. I think Regatta was a huge leap um, from the first single. Think, picture this. You've got in your mind, you've got Outlander Stamore, you've got Roxanne, you've got Can't Stand Losing, you've got So Lonely, great stuff, quirky stuff, interesting. Then you hear Message in a Bottle. And if your mind's not blown by Message mm. in a Bottle, you're, you're dead from the neck up because <laughs> the guitar alone is almost impossible. Even accomplished guitarists struggle with that guitar. Mm. The bass is just pummeling through that yeah, song. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievably catchy. And yeah. then you've got the chorus. It's one of the greatest pop songs of all time. And that's the lead single. That's and great. it doesn't disappoint. And there's some decent drumming on it too. There's some incredible drumming. And then you bang out Walking on the Moon. Great bassline. It's a great bassline, but it's super, super simple, mm. but incredibly catchy, and it's great for picking up chicks. That song, <laughs> right. walking on the moon. What, what actually on. singing it to them? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I, I I remember when I was a young lad at school, uh, sitting up the back of the class because I'd probably been put back there for whatever <laughs> reason, and just crooning, walking on the moon quietly. <laughs> 
all it took was the uh, Jamaican accent a to uh, faux Jamaican woo, accent. to woo the ladies. And I and I I had this particular girl in the palm of my hand, just you know, just just quietly singing "Walking on the Moon" in the back of the room. Wow, which also rhymes. Right. Yeah, true story. Okay, you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to give us a quick rendition of a couple of lines? No, no. Age hasn't done me any favours, <laughs> unlike yourselves. <laughs> yeah. um, and, well, that were the two singles? Yes, Oh, yes, maybe. Yes. I think The Bed's Too Big Without You was a single in America. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. not here, which is also an amazing song. It's a amazing song. It's bass lines, yeah. guitar. I mean, as an album, it's probably their most complete album. And Stuart Copeland's favourite mm. this album. Uh-huh. I would put it up there next to Ghost in the Machine as their best album. But and Stuart Copeland wrote a couple of great songs on that album. Well, they, Contact they usually was a had, great song. He didn't write Contact, did he? Yeah, he wrote Contact. Are you sure? He wrote Contact. I thought it was Does Everyone Stare. He wrote Does Everyone Stare and Contact. Uh-huh. Okay. I know Contact. Now, now you put a doubt in my I mind. I don't I'm think gonna... you're right there, Graham. I know Contact, the bass line, which is a sensational bass line, is, is ripped off a John Entwistle from the Who baseline. Right. It's not a note-for-note note rendition, but it's pretty close apparently. Not that I'm an aficionado of the Who, mm. but uh, John Entwistle was a very accomplished bass player. Um, we also had from that album one more track that I wanted to talk about, and <laughs> it was called Bring on the Night. Which, which was a single in some territories as well. Exactly, and also formed the, um, the backbone of Sting's later solo career, yeah. large parts of what yeah. he was doing live anyway. I think yeah. he released a double album called Bring On The Night. So mm. he continued yeah. to play that song later in his career, unlike a lot of the other police songs, which he dumped. Yeah. Uh, he's, 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 he's plundered his back he catalogue he's, <laughs> quite He's regularly. done a good plundering, but I think Bring On The Night was, was a stalwart. Can I, can I just say that Stuart had a hand in writing quite a bit on this album. Obviously, the three of them, there's a, the, the title track, Regatta de Blanc, is an instrumental, instrumental it's that a the three of them wrote together. Absolutely. Um, which, by the way, that song came out of Can't Stand Losing You. Ah, the jam, the breakdown. Mm. The breakdown the of the breakdown end. breakdown of Can't Stand yeah, Losing the, the, You. Yeah. That's how they, they, they were playing Can't Stand Losing You and it led into what became Regatta de Blanc. Uh, it's All Right For You was written by Sting and Stuart Copeland. Death Wish was written by the three of them. That's a great track. Yeah. On Any Other Day was written by Stuart Copeland. Contact was written by Stuart Copeland. And Does Everyone Stare? So I've been wrong Copeland. twice, two podcasts One, in a two, row. Wow. I've exposed my ignorance. He, he's, he had a hand at six. <laughs> he's got some editing to do, Graham. Six of the 11 songs. Really? I'm surprised Sting let that happen. Yeah, because at the time, <laughs> like, like I think from then on, Sting wanted all of the songs to be his. Well, I think he pretty much let them have one... Song yeah, but by, album, yeah, by the, the other certainly two. later on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a story jumping ahead about Ghost in the Machine that Omega Man was supposed to be the lead single. Andy Summers wrote that and Sting mm. vetoed it and stamped his feet and said no. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was uh, not allowed yep. to be released as the first single. Yep. Yep. Well, f- from the album before that, um, Zenyatta, um, there was a, a song instrumental. Behind My Camel. Behind My Camel which I know we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Don't get behind your camel or ahead of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting ahead of my camel here. The yeah. Egyptian truism. Never do that. <laughs> Never get ahead of your camel. <laughs> Always stay behind. Always stay behind. But there was a story that Sting hid or threw away the master tapes of that because he didn't want it on the album. 
Mm. And uh, Andy Summers got the upper hand eventually because the song won a Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental. I think it did. It yeah. did. It was the second year in a row that they'd won. They'd won that, yeah. What did they win? They won something off Regatta, didn't they? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the, the title, title track. track. Yeah. The title track, yeah. Oh. So they, best they, Rock Instrumental. They won Best best. It was instrumental, even though he was going EO through, mm, throughout the yeah, whole thing. Well, EO is still but it is, it is amazing that they won the Grammy for Best Rock Instrumental, given the nature of the Grammys in those days, because mm. I can tell you... What was you, winning Grammys that year, Patrick? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, in the rock category, other Grammys went to Billy Joel... Mm, in the yes. rock category. Worthy recipient. <laughs> what, what, what track did he win for? I don't know. That's oh, a good question. I, I don't mind a bit of Billy every no, now and no, again. No, no, no. But, but in terms, I mean, in later years, bands like Nine Inch Nails would would win the Grammy for, for this sort of stuff. Yeah. See, the police uh, set was, the groundwork, maybe. This, this year, yeah. It was uh, Pat Benatar. She's a, a little bit rock. Love is the Battlefield. Uh, 79, was it? Love is the Battlefield? <laughs> yeah. sure. Is that a song or are you just saying <laughs> No, I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> just a philosophy. Mm. Uh, and Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. So to throw a song from the album Regatta de Blanc into the middle of that is pretty revolutionary. Yeah, like that's, it's, that's pretty it, cool. It, it just yeah. shows how out there that was if if that was the um, the company they were keeping. And how successful they were once again. They were successful from, from the get-go. They really were scaling yeah. the heights. Mm. Well, for them to have success in the US, we mm. more or less – well, either their first single or their, their their second single to get top thirty or whatever with you know no no huge kind of corporate backing or anything like that just like just a really a interesting snappy label song called as in Roxanne. Mm. So <laughs> yeah, um, and and yeah, they did win the Grammy for best instrumental two years in a row, and which is very prestigious because do you know who won it the year after their no dual idea. triumph? Dire Straits. A flock of seagulls for instrumental. Yeah, ooh, the instrumental Mike, and Mike Howlett would have produced that exactly. Back to Strontium <gasps> exactly. ninety. <laughs> exactly. You're never too far from Strontium ninety. Exactly. The song was called DNA by okay. Flock of Seagulls, and that's the last nerdish thing I'm going to say in this podcast. Can I rely on that? <laughs> Count on it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to throw I'm effectively in effectively silenced, but carry on. I'm going to throw in my um, police live story at this point. Certainly. And you know, this is always a good story when I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be oh, something crazy. Well, in previous Sorry. in previous podcasts, uh, Mark has referred to fans of of a band turning up in German army outfits, World War Two helmets, World War Two helmets, Not World that's War right. One, World, World War Two. Yeah, yeah, that's big right. difference. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's yes, right. that's true. That's a fact. Hmm. This in this instance, my story will revolve around a non-gig. I remember this. Now Graham will remember this because the police first toured in Australia in early 1980. As a young lad, I'd had the first two albums on high rotation. I was excited. I, I was G'd up, ready to go. Myself and Curtis organised tickets, I think, first or second row. Your friend Curtis? Hall. My friend Curtis. He gets a mention quite a bit in this. <laughs> first or second row, centre stage, ready to go. Wow. Very excited. So the big day comes, and I think maybe the day before the big day, actually, it's announced that uh, Sting has... A throat infection or something's happened to Sting. Gig is postponed. Not cancelled, postponed. But we have good news for you fans. We will be back. We will redo this gig in a month or so because they've been doing Japan and wherever yeah, else in the rest yeah, of Australia. Yeah. Do you think the police let us down? They did. Yeah. They did not They come never back. came back. They never came back. They had no intention of coming back. Really? That's your That's my summation. theory. 
So the only gig they didn't do was Brisbane and that was the gig that I had tickets for and they never came back until the next time they toured, which was probably 83, I think. Mm. Did you get a refund in the meantime? I got a refund of my $24, <laughs> whatever it cost to see a gig <laughs> it, in those it, days. It wasn't that far ahead because I, I went to the next one. So you're saying that they toured probably on the back of Zenyatta and Mondata, which they may well have done. But Yes. I think I, I'm not disputing that, but, but I had moved on, Graham. Mm. I had moved on and I'd left the police behind. When they Won't get next, fooled again. Uh, exactly right, as the Who song said. I refused to go and see them. I staged a one-man protest. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How did that go? Uh, I'm sure Sting noticed. And uh, I didn't see them. That in, was it. In your helmet or not? That I was not the helmet guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, let that be recorded. <laughs> I, I did see them. The, well, that's the, the difference the between you and I, Graham. Mm. Well, You're a lot well, more forgiving. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, I was being, uh, I was forgiving, but it was really good. Like I was amazed at how. I need to rub it in. <laughs> mm. I was amazed at how full the sound was, and I'm assuming that there were, there were no backing tapes. Well, if this there. was Zenyatta, the tour, the third album, then it probably was pretty much just mm. them again. Yeah, no backing just, vocalists, yeah. no keyboards. Because because they, they did have. Like uh, when Andy wasn't playing guitar, he was playing a keyboard and uh, oh. Sting was playing this upright bass. They started with Don't Stand So Close To Me. Have you got a year for us? I, I think it's 81. So just the following year, God, I, I yeah. was bitter. Yeah, you were really bitter. Really, one year had passed and I refused to see them. Usually your bitterness lasted much more than that, though. Um, I, it continued on. Yeah. I didn't see them but in the But in general, your, your bitterness lasts decades. <laughs> oh, I can hold a grudge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, um, Zenyatta came out in October of 1980. Right, so the following so it year. Would be, it's almost yeah. a year later. So they banged those albums out 78, yeah, yeah. 79 and 80, almost a year apart, Yeah, which yeah. is pretty amazing. I mean, and Zenyatta was obviously, as anybody who's got ears or was alive will know, was a huge Don't mm. Stand So Close To Me, Do 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 Do, gigantic yeah. hits. And that's why I refused to see them. Because they were successful. <laughs> They'd blown their credibility with me <laughs> and they never came back. They promised they'd come back and they didn't. Wow. And, you know, you you, you, you break a promise to me, <laughs> Sting. <laughs> I'll never forget it. And yet you were happy for him to sign your copy of Roxanne that's right. Several decades later. I had forgiven him by the mid to late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I um, knew he was going to be at a particular venue one night in Sydney. And uh, sure enough, he was there and I, and I sat down and had a chat. We had a chat, I should say. He asked me about my life as well. Mm. And um, <laughs> I happened to pull out my copy of Roxanne. You didn't mention Brisbane. I didn't. You know, I might have actually. You know what I did really? say to Sting? You I said, harassed Sting I said about cancelling a concert I said to 20 Sting, years earlier. I made you. I bought this single. <laughs> and don't you forget it. I bought your first single, Sting. You owe me. <laughs> and I did actually say that to him in a fairly lighthearted way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I happened to have a text to pen with me as well and uh, got him to yeah. sign my copy of Roxanne. Because every time you go to a nightclub, you always have a text to pen with you. And a copy of Roxanne. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, Just in case. Just in case. True story. And he was—he took it in good part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. your your threats are usually laced with with a little <laughs> bit of friendliness, just to kind of yeah, well, just to Sting, kind of so, to, to to soften the edges of the threat of violence. Sting's a Geordie. He understands how things can go. 
and he, he acknowledged the fact that I had made him by buying his first single. So mm. we were fine after that. Yeah. And I subsequently- and you've been friends ever since. Ever since. I subsequently went and saw them on the reunion tour probably six or seven years ago, which was probably about 2010 they came. 2008. Eight, was it? Oh, jeez. Yeah, I think okay, so. Okay, so nine years ago mm. uh, when they did that huge world tour. I was there. Reunion tour. So I finally got to see it. And them. it wasn't as good. Why? Because we're Because old. the audience grew up. Yeah. And, and they were all quiet and they just kind of sat. I also, I also remember being disappointed that everybody was old and it just reminded me of how much mm. time had passed and that was kind of depressing. Well, I think, you, I think you may have mentioned the fact that um, everyone there seemed like they had to get home to babysitters or something like that, yeah. which, which is probably true. Probably true, yeah. But, yeah. They, well, they, they had they, to they look after kind of, the grandkids, like, didn't like they? The, like the police. <laughs> the police, I thought, performed really well. They were really enthusiastic. They did their part. They were jumping around for mm. you know, middle-aged men. Mm. And then the audience were just sort of sitting Everybody there. Everybody just stood there sat and there, yeah, applauded politely. Yeah. It was no 1980. No, um, it wasn't. If it had been 1980. By the way, it was 1981 that, that I saw them. That you saw the following year. Well, that just shows you how bitter I was. I refused mm. to go only a year later. Mm. So there we are. I hope I hope they appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he did hurt his voice. Yeah, well, they said they'd mm. come back. Yeah, they yeah, did. Yeah. And they went, yeah. the, the, they went from, <laughs> from Brisbane, they went to one of the islands. Oh, so they were having a good time. So yeah, yeah. There you uh, go. Well, I'm glad I feel, someone was. I feel just justified in my, mm. you know, protest. And if ever you see the uh, the police documentary, I think it was called Around the World. Yes. They actually have Sting going into the doctor and the doctor telling him that he's uh, in Brisbane. Uh, yeah, it must must really? be. Really? Well, yeah. that's pretty cool. Oh, that's yeah. that's that's not bad. Oh, I think I skipped over Zenyatta. I refused to acknowledge its yeah. existence, despite it being a huge yeah. hit. Well, you you and I were in correspondence at the time because you were living in Brisbane and I was living uh, possibly mm. in, in Ballarat or maybe in, in Melbourne. But, but in any case, I do remember the blacked out phrases and words in some letters. And now it's become apparent that, <laughs> that they I was referring are, in to fact, the police. Police album titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually remember hearing Sting in an interview saying, sort of in typical Sting fashion, that the world was waiting for the next police album. And he that, said that. And he wanted the next police album to be a number one around the world. Wow. And, and he made a conscious effort to write. And I think he did actually write some of his catchiest pop songs on that album. Because yep. after that, he, he started getting a little bit more intellectual. Mm. You know, he wanted mm. to talk about philosophers and all that sort of yep. thing. But on Zenyatta, it was lighter. It's jaunty. Jaunty, yeah. Mm. Jaunty is probably a good, good, good word. And uh, as you say, there's no great intellectualism behind it. It does sound a bit rushed. And I think they did say later on that the record company was kind of pressuring them a little bit to kind of make it happen or maybe they were pressuring themselves. But in any case, there are a few songs on there which sound like not much more than extended jams. Mm. Um, but they're but really good jams. Yeah. And there's also some songs like there's two songs, A Man in a Suitcase and Canary in a Coal Mine, that I reckon Sting would have written with one hand tied behind his yeah. back. You, you, yeah. can, you can tell it. Not a great deal of time went into it, but you could tell that it was up-tempo, it was catchy, it was happy. Yeah, and and people would have, you know, and, and I think the songs went, went over really well live, and yeah, uh, yeah, and I think that's uh, yeah, that that was what he wanted to do was uh, to do something that was going to appeal yep. to a lot of people. But I, I think it was a really clever album and um, a really appropriate 
follow-up to Regatta de Blanc in that it was it sounded much more polished, mm. but it also I think still sounded fresh and lots of snappy songs. And Mark, you really should listen to it one well, day. Give it a chance. <laughs> give it, I think you should give it a chance. I do want to point out that uh, in 1980, when it came out, um, I was a swimming pool attendant. <laughs> In, in, in Brisbane. What did that involve? <laughs> you, you went to the pool? It, it, it involves me uh, cleaning swimming pools. and oh, um, I think I saw this in a porno once. Yeah. And you'd go around and knock yeah, on the door I'd and a woman would answer the door and you'd yeah. offer to clean her pool. Yeah, well, that, that, that was basically my role, only without the okay. sex. <laughs> Can we get back on track, guys? And how were the police involved in this? Um, <laughs> they were called. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you did your time. <laughs> no, no. Uh, at the time, uh, I was eighteen. I'd got my first car, and uh, in in the car, I listened to uh, Zenyatta Mondetta. I had a cassette of that, and the first uh, and and the Jams Setting Suns album, uh, and they were the only two cassettes that I had in in my car for for like months. I did eventually. The swimming pool attending didn't pay that well. <laughs> no. <laughs> Despite but, what you might think. But I just want to say Halcyon that days. the reason why I know Zenyatta so well is because of during uh, the summer of 1980, uh, being a swimming pool attendant and listening to that album going to and from work. And I was obsessed with Don't Stand So Close To Me. I, I just thought That's it was a great, such a great song. song. Would never be released today. We've talked about this before, Graham. Yeah. The subject matter is is positively pervy. You try and release a song about a school teacher having sex with one of his students today and see how far you get. That's right. And and it was based on a, a novel, wasn't it? No, it was based it on a true a fa- story. A novel it was based on what happened to Sting. <laughs> it wasn't based it's on reminiscent that. of it. It's not reminiscent of Lolita. It's Lolita, based on yeah. him um, being a school teacher. And, and uh, the temptations. The temptations that are placed before <laughs> You like the temptations? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, yes, you wouldn't be able to release that today. No. I don't think. But, and, and also, uh, once again, talking about how well the police got on and looked in videos. Yeah. When he was a, a school teacher in the video, I think. Yeah. He was. Yeah. And they were climbing up ladders and jumping off yeah, ladders. Yeah. And it, it was, I don't know, I just loved it. The whole, I mean, I wasn't. Still bitter like Mark was. You're a lot happier than Graham. You're a happier person <laughs> yeah. than me. But I had forgiven them for cancelling that concert. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was a great song. And there was a few, like, Driven to Tears. When the world is when, running when down is a great yeah, song. Yeah. I think that album suffers because it's known for those kind of throwaway pop songs, mm. but there's actually some great stuff on yeah, them. Yeah. But I think, what are we talking, 81 now? Uh, Zenyatta was late 80. It was late, late 80, 80 Okay, it? so I guess we're, they'd, they'd run their course in terms of being a kind of interesting pop band and yeah. turned into the monolith that they were going to become yeah. or yeah. always wanted to become. Mm. Yeah. Well, they were they were a proper number one globally band yeah. with Zenyatta, mm. which they obviously stayed. For, and that's what for the was the idea. So the the transition from Zenyatta to Ghost in the Machine, the next album, which came out roughly twelve months later, is kind of an interesting one because you can see the kind of cogs moving in Sting's head, because Sting is a kind of Sting wanted to be taken seriously, I think, as an intellectual type person. As an artist. As an artist, yeah. Mm. And he... He started reading. He started reading or continued to read or just admitted to, to reading. And, and it was 
it suddenly became quite kind of blatant that you know, he wanted to be seen as someone who read books, so he started naming albums after books, you know, like liter- literally. So, you know, <laughs> there was no kind of... Um, no kind of metaphor, or whatever. Right. Like literally, this is a really good book that I hope lots of people read by mm. this philosopher fella called Arthur Kessler, and, who and, and interestingly changed called... his name to changed his name to Kramer in later episodes. <laughs> 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 nice reference. <laughs> so that's an obscure Seinfeld reference there, but Seinfeld being a television show, being a television show <laughs> of the late eighties. Tell me more about this. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah, but uh, yes. Yeah, so he was trying almost painfully hard to be taken seriously, and I mean, certainly Stuart Copeland had cheerfully admitted to never having read the book A Ghost in the Machine at any point during the recording process for the album. Um, and the album is quite heavily burdened, I think, with the significance of the lyrics and how important Sting thinks the album is. And, I mean, we may differ on whether we love the album or not. It's um, my favourite Police album. Really? I think. And oh, really? But, but the three singles off it are um, absolute stunners, Yep. I yep. think. Um, it brought me back, I was going to say. I know this isn't all about me. <laughs> but it brought me back to the police after the disappointment of the March 1980 concert <laughs> the, the 18-month blackout was over. The blackout was the over. Blackout when was I heard over. every little thing she does is magic, my heart melted. All right. And I went, Sting, you magnificent bastard. <laughs> <laughs> you've, I love you've you written, again. You've written a cracker. And it is a great song. And once you raise the curtain on your heart. Well, it was only, it's, a, yeah. it was only a matter of time before he signed Roxanne <laughs> for me. A long time. <laughs> 18 still, years later. 18 years later. Oh, when I love, good. I love Patrick. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, the three singles are uh, every, every Little Thing She Does Is Magic, Beautiful. Spirits in the Material World and Invisible Sun. Invisible Sun. Yeah. Great songs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ambitious songs. The album was yeah. ambitious, the production. Yeah. Apparently was recorded, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I have been before, <laughs> will be again. Uh, all their, they recorded everything separately. Yep, se- separate rooms. I think it was Hugh Padgham uh, yep. produced the album. He said they did this for social reasons, yep. which is a really nice for, way of saying mm. everybody hated each other. For, well, <laughs> for sonic and social reasons. Sonic and social reasons. <laughs> but there was, um, they recorded it in Montserrat, and yes. there's, there's a great video out of, of great outtakes of them recording. And, uh, with Jules Holland? With Jules Holland, yeah. With Jules oh, Holland. Inter- does, does, does interviewing each of them, interviewing each of them one keyboard. by one. Yeah, but if ever you get a yeah, chance to yeah, see yeah, that, yeah, it's, fantastic. It's, it's really interesting. I'd like to see that. Even uh, Sting uh, talks a bit about his songwriting process. He's got the upright bass that he's, he shows them how to use. And um, <laughs> then he talks to Andy Summers, who's out on the veranda with his guitar set up. So uh, obviously they, <laughs> they were nowhere near each other. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I think there's some footage of them jamming around this period that I've seen somewhere, mm. which is just incredible. Right, right. Of of them just going yep. for it and coming up with stuff as they as they mm. did, and it was yep. it really spectacular. Oh, they were, they were amazing. They Very were inventive amazing. stuff, yeah. and still kind of pushing the boundaries even at the fourth album stage. It wasn't yeah, like yeah. settling into a formula. There was less of the reggae thing. Probably the first three albums really relied on that reggae thing. I'd mm. say um, Ghost in the Machine, Synchronicity. Yep. Pretty much left that behind. Spirits in the, in the material world had that nice little lilting sort of 
keyboard thing going on, but the rest of it. Well, it was a much fuller sound because it had the sequence keyboards and sequence-like brass lines, which Sting played all of them, I think. I yeah. think he, yeah, he I learnt think how to right. play saxophone and, and, and a couple of other I brass think instruments. I it's pronounced saxophone. <laughs> Uh, over the course of six months, he taught himself to, to play a couple of these instruments and there's very competent mm. brass lines in there. I mean, you can argue about whether... Uh, Ghost in the Machine is probably my least favourite. Is that right? Uh, we are diametrically opposed. We are. I mean, I Yet still, again. Again. Yeah, um, I, I think there, there are some fantastic songs Is it on too it. dark for you, Paddy? It's a pretty dark album. It was a dark album. A little album. bit dark, yeah. Well, I was, I was preparing. Now I get to tell a personal anecdote. I heard the album as I was just after I'd finished my final school exams and I was awaiting my HSC results with some trepidation. Tense, you're saying. They were tense times. Mm. So the album for me reflected tense that times. tension. Oh, really? That tension, yeah. And yeah. you hadn't found a way of releasing that tension at that no, point? No, no. You were I'd, some years away from that. I tried jogging. <laughs> what else did you try? More jogging. <laughs> More songs about jogging. And once, and once, once I finished jogging, I jogged a little bit more. But I think something that's interesting about Ghost in the Machine is the fact that in pretty much every country in the world, the first single was "Every Little Thing She Does Is Magic," mm. which sets the scene through through the film clip set in the Caribbean. It's a really fun film clip. They all great video, having a good time. Yeah, mm. yeah, having having a great time, etc. And I think the initial single for a much-anticipated album is always, you know, it just kind of paints the picture, sets the scene. It's like this is what this album is like, mm. which is interesting in terms of Ghost in the Machine because it is completely unlike mm. the, the rest of the album mood-wise. Mm. Whereas in the UK, Invisible Sun was the first single. About Ireland. With, yeah. About Controversially. The, about the Troubles. The, the Troubles. In Northern Ireland. And the film clip is really, really bleak. Mm. I mean, it, it's quite matter-of-fact. It's just black-and-white footage of kind of bombed-out buildings in Belfast and Kids, you know, living in just squalor. Clearly, not not necessarily squalor. Hinting at squalor, but uh, you know, kind of <laughs> A like smidge of squalor. Stormy. It was near squalor. Near. Stormy weather. One and street away from military squalor. vehicles yeah. driving it, it around. It wasn't cheery and, as opposed to jumping yeah, around the so, Caribbean. Yeah. So, mm. so the idea that in the UK, that's what people were thinking of, in, you know, as far as the forthcoming Ghost in the Machine album and, and in Australia. It's like, oh, these guys are jumping up and down in the recording studio, swapping hats as they're dancing. Mm. You know, it's it's a very different vibe. Absolutely. But, yeah, well, it's not your favourite album because of the time. Well, I find that the sequence keyboards and the kind of brass stuff and all that just kind of mutes the stuff that I love the most, which is the rhythm section is kind of, it's just a bit more claustrophobic because the drums and the guitar and indeed the bass don't have as much room to shine as individual. Mm. I think Sting had sort of started to take over a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Andy Summers said that we were sort of Sting's backing band. Yeah, by yeah. that point, yeah, or and it, the and singer's backing yeah. band, as he described it. Yeah, and it does feel like that. And also, the drums kind of feel a little bit muted, like the snare sound is just a bit kind of dull or something, just feels a little bit lacking in just overall brightness of sound. And some of the songs in the kind of the middle of the album I don't, I think are okay, but, for. but not great. Demolition Man doesn't do it okay, for you. Okay, Amiga Man, not so much. Yeah. So great. I like those songs. It ends very well though. With? Secret Journey and Darkness. Nice.
have to talk about Synchronicity being the album that most people would know yeah, yeah. the police for. I mean, it's it's not really fitting into what we're talking about post-punk. It's the end of the police. It's their last album, but it's their most well-known album and their yep. most successful album, and a probably good a good point for them to finish and for us to probably finish on as well. Yep. Three huge hit singles wrapped around your finger, every breath you take, and uh, what was the third one? Synchronicity two. Synchronicity two. No, there was. There was a oh, King of Pain. King of Pain, which is a great song as well. Yeah. I quite like this album, but there's a lot of holes in it. Mm. I mean, I like the singles, and um, it sounds like a band that's ending. And it sounds like Sting's album. Yeah, well, that's right. But put it into context, what have we got? First album, 78, 79, 80, 80 81, 81 83. 83. That's five albums banged out in an incredibly mm. short space of time. Yeah. As Patrick said in the preamble, they went from one place to the biggest band in the world in a very short space of time, mm. Uh, mm. setting the scene for you know the various solo projects and Sting to go off and do his... Stuff that he's well known for and much maligned for. <laughs> um, so, would were you a little bit put off? Did, did you feel that the Synchronicity album it was becoming more kind of like serious Sting mode? I felt like they like had less... written three singles, and then the rest was sort of Sting stuff. Uh, right, right. I don't know. It, I I enjoyed it for what it was, but it didn't emotionally connect. In right, the way the right. others had done, I suppose. Yeah. And I wasn't still bitter. I was okay. Yeah, yeah. No, you'd raise the curtain on your black heart. Absolutely. That stage. <laughs> That's a beautiful image, Patrick. Thank you. <laughs> 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 and Graham, how, how did Synchronicity sit with you? Uh, I thought it was good. I didn't like Every Breath You Take when I first heard it because, to me, it didn't sound like a police song. It sounded like an amalgam of songs that had been written before. Like, like Stand By Me. Like Stand By Me <laughs> and, and uh, what was the um, I Love You More Than I Can See, Slio Sayer? Slio Sayer. The bridge was, was taken straight from that song. So, um, Good get. Yes. I, don't, I don't think many people listening to that song mm. would have gone, you know what, that's more than a whiff of Leo Sayer about that. <laughs> you don't want more than a whiff of Leo Sayer. <laughs> but as you know, Sting is always, at the time, wanted to write hits and uh, he must have known he was under a, a winner when he wrote that. Mm, so um, the, the fact that that became as huge, as it, it's no mm. surprise. That it's it probably their huge. biggest selling song, yeah. isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. And what most people would know them for. But Wrapped Around Your Finger and King of Pain, I thought were great songs. Mm. Yeah. I really like them. So side one, it seems as if you guys are saying side two, as we used to call these things, is really good. Mm. And side one is a whole bunch of nothing. Yeah, yeah. it's not far off the truth. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up, yeah. I think they'd, they'd run their course. I mean, according to my album theory, you get two to three albums. I'll give them <laughs> two. Um, Outlandos and Regatta were groundbreaking Intriguing, interesting album, yeah. and yeah. then the formula set in, the money set in, the rot set in, and uh, and it ran its course, which is no bad thing. Synchronicity doesn't sound formulaic to me, though. Uh, it does to me. It sounds like, like I said, three three hit singles and and the rest of it's filler for the most part. Not all of it, but because I'm I have to say I'm I'm a big fan of Synchronicity. It's probably oh. my second favourite. What's your first favourite? Probably Regatta de Blanc. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll get on to that at some point mm. because I want to know, what I want to know is yeah. your least favourite album 
<laughs> least well, least favourite song, I should say. Oh, yes, le- least favourite song. You're, because we're going to have this as a regular feature. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Least, uh, least favourite song. song from the least band we've been talking about. Favourite song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are, there are a lot of B-sides which are which are pretty throwaway, but I suppose we shouldn't probably include B-sides. No, I'd that's, say that's no, from the not, albums, not, what, not what's fair. the least favourite thing you have from the five albums the police recorded? Yeah. Well, every album, every police album, I think, has a couple of songs that, a couple that of could easily have been left off. Mm. Um, in terms of a song that I can appreciate more than love, maybe Mother. Oh, really? Off the Synchronicity album. That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, that's certainly one that, that springs to mind. But I think um, I really like the fact that on this mega platinum, this clearly an album that's clearly going to be, going to be mega platinum, Synchronicity, that the band decided to put a song as out there as Mother a song Andy Summers wrote possibly about his mother <laughs> um, on on the album. But whether it stands up to repeated listenings is, you know, it's it, it, it's probably one to, to skip you know, on the CD, it, you're the CD generation. calling it your least favourite. Um, off, off the top of my head. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. That's yeah. good enough. Yeah. All right, Graham, your, well, your featured segment is... Oh, I, I thought we were all doing our, our, our no, least No, 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 we're, we're having different I think ones. Graham's... Oh, well, he can, at the bit he can, to mention he can his, do that, his but he's still got his own little feature. To tell the truth, I, my, my, I was going to say mother as well. Really? Yeah. So you're in agreement. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Now, what I want you to tell me is your the influences that you see the police have had on other people, because that's a really interesting thing, because it's difficult. Mm. Well, when I suggested that this feature, I hadn't put much thought into the, into the police thing. Uh, but, <laughs> but however... This um, is going to be good, Graham. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to write a, a jingle and everything to, to introduce this bit and then just have me sitting in there going, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, well, can I just say that uh, after The Police became successful... The first were, single? Um, no, 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 sorry, when I say successful, during the 80s, when they, they'd proven their chops, their commercial chops in uh, America, a lot of bands came out... That were um, there was a band called Mister Mister. There was a band called The Fix as well. Yeah. I would have said we were a bit influenced by that mm-hmm. sound. Um, but but Mister Mister weren't particularly a good band. But I remember seeing them thinking, "Oh, they're trying to do the police here." The, 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 there was a lot of that faux reggae scene. Yeah, yeah, faux was, reggae yeah. scene. Men at work were not yeah, a million no, miles true. away from ripping off yeah. the police. Yeah. Australian yeah. Crawl had a crack at it. Yeah. A lot of people tried to do it, but I don't know that anybody did. Yeah. But no. is, is something that might loosely be called white reggae? Is that is that definitely a yeah. police influence? Or? Yes, I'd say that that's as a generic style of music. A lot of people tried to do it, maybe only for a couple of songs, but no one really successfully nailed. But you would see that as a police-ish thing rather than yeah. because I love Bob Marley or whatever. I'd say mm. it's a police thing. Yeah, I'd yeah. say the police had a huge influence over that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. with the style of singing that, that Sting did and the space in yeah. the sound, yeah. the emptiness in the sound was. There was a lot of bands trying to do it, but no one really did it, Mm. which um, is going to bring me to my featured segment, which is why this band matters. Yeah. I just came up with that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No one's been able to replicate the sound of the police. There's no No. band that you think of that sounds really a bit like them, and I think they opened up the doors for for the emptiness of this particular sound, the space of this sound that they that we associate with a lot of the 80s music that we're talking about. They didn't invent the sound, but I think they took it forward. And um, despite what a lot of those 
punk bands and post-punk bands would say they were influenced by what the police did, ironically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which they would not like to admit, but I think they the police took this sound and took it somewhere different and proved that you could have success with it as well. Because as we said, when you first heard the song like Roxanne, it didn't sound like anything. No. It was really difficult to kind of place in any kind of context and they yeah. went with that and ran with it and had huge, gigantic success and were probably the biggest of all the post-punk bands in mm. terms of record sales and that's why they're important. I totally agree. I often say um, like everyone remembers the, the commercial songs, the top 40 singles. They remember how good-looking Sting was and all that sort of thing. But if you took away Sting, not, not completely, took away his voice, took away the lyrics, you're left with some of the best drumming, <laughs> bass playing and yeah, guitar yeah. playing that, that, that you'll ever hear. And it was, it was totally, what they were doing was totally unique. Mm. Mm. And, and the three of them together made that, the three individuals yeah. – may never have amounted to a hill of beans. Yeah, in this crazy world. In this crazy world. But as a band, they had something special and, and the tension that they had made what happened, yep. happen. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that the three of them individually had achieved very little in curved air or the animals or no exit, you know, the various bands they played in, they might have been, you know, solid instrumentalists or you know, de a decent singer or whatever, but the fact that the three of them came together and, you know, I mean, there are songs on the first album like Truth Hits Everybody or whatever, which are kind of... Good enough. Not bad, but 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 not that interesting. But they kind of gradually carved out this, this absolutely amazing sound. And I think the fact that their individual contributions to the band were were brilliant. They were both more than the sum of their parts, mm. but the actual parts, each part was absolutely unforgettable as well. Well, mm. uh, Stuart Copeland said something interesting. This is probably a good place to almost call it a day. He said, "We we may we would never have done anything without Sting. We would have we would have been good. We would have been interesting. But without that extra part, the three of us needed each other. But without Sting, we didn't have the songs." Um, yep. I think that yeah, was a yeah. really interesting thing because their, their talent was undeniable. They were all yeah, amazing yeah. musicians, but they just yeah. needed the songs and he had the yeah, songs. Yeah. He said Sting would have been successful without us, yep. but we yep. wouldn't have been successful without him. Mm. 